This week's sermon is taken from Mark 14, verse 53 to 65. Let's read it together on the count of three. One, two, three. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and the chief priest, and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warning himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, the testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? Charge. Oh, so, you, as death, death. And some began to spit on it, and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophecy. And the guards received him with blows. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You guys may be seated. Now, I just came back from Indonesia, by the way, if you guys do not know, um, been missing for the last couple of weeks. And my body was, in Cindy's words, knackered. Okay, I don't even know what that word means. I have to Google knackered. What's that? Okay, I can literally tell you that my body is knackered, but my heart is on fire. My heart is burning with passion for the gospel. But if you see me a little bit weird today, it's because I'm not there yet. Okay, uh, apparently the last two weeks, you know, if you do not know, your pastor is an extreme introvert. And for the past two weeks, from Monday, from morning to night, they've been squeezing my energy out of me and to the point that I have not only zero tank, I'm on minus 1,000, all right? So for the last two days, I've been recovering and I'm almost there, but I can feel it. I'm still not there yet, okay? So if I'm a bit awkward when I have conversation with you, you know why, okay? Not because I don't love you. I do love you. I miss you guys. But um, I'm still recovering right now. But I'm excited because uh, if you do not know, our church actually uh, get to play part in a gospel movement in Indonesia. And this is something that's very exciting, not just for me as your pastors, but actually you are playing part because my ministry is actually an extension of your ministry. I cannot do it without you. Uh, so the fact that we are able to play part um, of gospel movement in Indonesia is because you guys are enabling me to do that. So I want to say thank you. And we look forward to what God will do um, in Indonesia. Now, I have a lot of stories to tell, but I'm here to tell you about God's Word, not my story. But I'm just going to tell you one, the main highlight of my trip. The main highlight is this. For the first couple of days of my trip, people kept calling me anak muda, okay? Apparently, they think I'm still in my mid-20, all right? So I'm like, sorry, but I'm actually one of the trainer. <laughs> I'm not in my mid-20, but okay, that's fine. All right, let's get into the passage. Now, earlier this year, we had what is probably the most watched and popular trial in the last century. 
The trial lasted for six weeks, and it was so fascinating to the point that they made a documentary movie out of it. Now, do you know what a trial I'm talking about? The Depp Heard Trial, right? Now, in case you do not know anything about it, Johnny Depp sued his ex-wife, Amber Heard. He sued her for defamation of an opinion article she wrote for the Washington Post, alleging she was a domestic abuse victim, though it did not mention him by name. And Amber Heard countersued. Now, for the sake of peace and unity in our church, I wouldn't ask, I won't ask who's on whose side, all right? I'm afraid if I ask that, we might have a church split at the end of the day. I'm not a law person, but I think I watch law drama enough to know that for a trial to be fair, the jury and the judge must remain impartial throughout the process. We can't have a fair trial if the judge and the jury already predetermined whether the person on trial is guilty or innocent. They must decide purely on the evidence presented. Now imagine going to a trial where everyone in the room has already predecided that you are guilty no matter what. Now that's not a trial. That's a witch hunt. And today we're not talking about the Dab Hurt trial. We are talking about the most infamous trial in human history for its injustice. We are talking about the trial of Jesus by the Sanhedrin. Think about it. It is unthinkable that Jesus Christ, the creator and the king of the universe, should be subjected to a trial by a mere man. But in the good providence of God, it happened. Jesus is on trial for his life. And there's nothing more dramatic than being being on trial for your life. And Jesus has no public attorney to defend his case. He's defending himself. And he's accused of many false charges. And then he's called to testify on the witness stand. And then he gives the most shocking testimony about himself. And his testimony changes everything, including our life. If we get what Jesus said about himself in this trial and why he does it, the power, it has the power to set us free from all our trials. So let's get into the passage. I have three points for my sermon. The trial, the judge, and the verdict. And then I will give four ways how this trial changes our life forever. Let's look at the first one, trial. Verse 53 to verse 59. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, sorry. Thank you, Chief Fena, for doing this. I forgot that I'm doing this now. And he listened right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not met with hands, yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. So at this time, right now, they just captured Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they brought Jesus to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest of Israel. And by the way, let me tell you, I think Edric did spectacular job, spectacular job last week preaching. Okay, how many of you agree? Even though, even though, even though, he tried to skip the naked man part, okay? He still did a wonderful job. So now all the members of the Sanhedrin come together in Caiaphas' courtyard, and Mark tells us that Peter is following Jesus at a distance. Now, I want us to 
pause here a bit, and I want to talk a little bit about Peter. Not so much, because this is next week's sermon. I don't want to steal the thunder from the two people who are going to preach next week. But isn't it interesting that Peter followed Jesus at a distance? Why do you think he does that? This is what I think. I think Peter is conflicted. He's conflicted between his commitment to Jesus and his safety. Because on one hand, remember how he promised to Jesus, even if all these chumps ignore you and walk away from you, I will not. I will die for you. But on the other hand, he also realized if he got too close to Jesus, it might endanger his life. So Peter followed Jesus just enough. Close enough to still be around Jesus and not close enough to affect his life. He forsake costly discipleship for safe observation, which asks us a very pointy question. Are we today following Jesus at a distance? Do, we, do people around us know that we are Christian? Because I'm convinced many of us are like Peter. Like, we stick close enough to still be called Christians, but not close enough to make our life uncomfortable. And that's not going to work, and we will see why later. But let's go back to Jesus' trial for now. So Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin for his trial, and this trial is extremely problematic. Because unlike a fair trial, they have already predecided that Jesus is guilty before the trial even begins. I mean, the law of a trial is innocent until proven guilty. But now in this trial, Jesus is guilty until proven innocent. But the Sanhedrin will not allow Jesus to be found innocent no matter what. They have come too far. So the purpose of this trial is not to find out whether Jesus is guilty or not. The purpose of this trial is to find sufficient charges to prove Jesus guilty. Because the Sanhedrin do not have the authority to kill Jesus. Only the Roman government has the right to sentence capital punishment. So now, what they try to do is they actually to find things from Jesus that prove that he's guilty of breaking both Jewish law and Roman law. So this trial is filled with injustice. Okay, let me share with you four injustices that are ripped off from J.D. Greer. First, the timing of the trial is unjust. Jesus' trial takes place sometime around midnight. And Jewish law said trials could not occur at night. It must occur during the day so it be open to public and open to scrutiny. Furthermore, trials are not allowed to take place on days of feast because people are traveling and distracted. But do you know when this trial occurred? In the middle of the Passover. This is illegal. It will be like arresting Jesus late at night on Christmas Eve, and then his trial is held privately at 2 a.m. later that night. Now, we will smell something fishy about that, right? This is not right. And not only that, but second thing, the trial process is unjust. The Sanhedrin is supposed to be impartial judges who look at the evidence fairly. But in Jesus' case, it is the Sanhedrin that makes charges. Now, do you see what happened? So they're both the judge and the prosecutor. Now imagine that. Imagine you're on trial and the judge come off the bench, lead the prosecution, and then come back to sit in his chair. 
There's no way the judge can be impartial, right? But the third one, the use of the witness is unjust. According to Jewish law, all the witnesses must agree on their testimony or the case will be thrown out. And if the witnesses are found to be lying, they will be severely punished. In Jesus' trial, the Sanhedrin kept looking for witnesses and they can't find any. And the few that they find, you know what happened? They contradict each other. So the best they can come up with is accusing Jesus of wanting to destroy the temple in Jerusalem, which, by the way, is a capital crime. But Jesus never said that. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple, but he never called the temple to be destroyed. But there was one time that Jesus did say, I will destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. But he wasn't talking about little temple. You know what he was talking about? He was talking about his body. So now all these you know, witnesses give false testimony. They quote Jesus out of context, and even then, their testimonies do not agree. Because you know this. If you, I hope you never do this. But if you ever get a bunch of people to tell the same lie, it's really hard. It's really hard to lie in harmony. And it's very hard to accuse the perfect son of God of wrongdoing. And fourth, the sentencing is unjust. Because Jewish law required them to wait for three days before making the final sentence of capital punishment. And in those three days, they're supposed to pray to make sure they make the right decision and to give time for any new evidence to come out or any new witness to come forward. But the Sanhedrin make the death sentence almost immediately. Now, can you see how unfair this trial is? In normal situation, the case should have been dismissed. There's nothing about this trial that's legal and just. Nearly every detail violates Jewish law and God's commandment. Do you know why? Because for the Sanhedrin, Jesus is already guilty before their eyes. So now, they use all evidence to press against Jesus. And when we read this story, we can look at them and say, oh my goodness, what a bunch of evil people. This is so unfair for Jesus. How terrible. I will never do that. But let me suggest to you, we do this all the time. Now, do you know what sin is? Sin is us putting ourselves in the place of God. Sin is substituting ourselves for God. So when we say to God, God, it's my life. I get to decide what is right and wrong. I get to decide how I'm going to live my life. It's my life. Do you know what we're doing? We are sitting on the judgment seat, and we are putting God on trial. See, when we say to God, God, I don't like what's happening with me right now. I don't like what's happening with the world. It's not fair. I think I deserve better. And we get so angry because of it. We have put ourselves in the position of the judge, and we put God in the stand. Now, this is the irony in this. God is the one who should sit in the judgment seat. We are the one who should be on trial. But we are reversing the role all the time. This is what sin is. Sin makes us irrational. So rather than looking at the evidence clearly, sin makes us use all the evidence to justify our position. Sin makes us look at God and say, God, you are guilty, 
and I will do everything I can to prove that you are guilty so that I can feel good about my life. We need someone to blame for our life. And this is what we do. Instead of trusting God with our life, sin makes us blame God for our life. When we do that, we are putting God on trial. Now, Sinclair Ferguson has a wonderful illustration. He put it this way. Imagine a father who takes his little boy to his toy store around Christmas time. Okay? So he walked through the store with his little boy, and the father say, Son, do you see that toy? Would you like that? And the little boy says, Yes, Daddy, I would like that. Then they go a little further, and the father asks, Do you see that toy over there? Do you see all those toys there? Yes, Daddy. Would you like those toys? Oh, yes, Daddy, I would like those toys. So they go through every part of the store doing that. And when they get to the end of the store, the father turns to his son and says, Son, let me tell you why I brought you here. I've brought you here to let you know that you are not going to get any of this toy. I'm not going to give you any of them. Do you see all those toys? You will have none of it. Now let's go home and do your homework. What comes to our mind when we hear about this father? What a jerk. Am I right? But let me tell you, this is what we believe in the deep of our heart about God because of sin. If we do not realize it, we do not know ourselves. Because deep inside our heart, we do not believe that God has our best interests at heart. We believe that God is never going to give us what we want most in life, and we put Him on trial because of that. But look at what happened next. It's shocking. The judge, verse 60 to 62. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that this man testified against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So while all these accusations are made against Jesus, Jesus remained silent. So Caiaphas, the high priest, decided to take matter into his own hand. And he asked Jesus a very profound question. And this question shows us that Caiaphas is a very shrewd man. Because his question is nothing short of genius. And his wording is very precise. This is what he asks. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? There are two things that Caiaphas asks here. Okay, first, are you the Christ? He's asking Jesus, are you the Messiah that the Jews have been waiting for? And if Jesus says, yes, I am, Caiaphas has something he can use against Jesus to the Roman government because now he can accuse Jesus of rebellion against Rome since the Jews believe that the Messiah is a political figure who will set them free from Roman oppression. But that's not the only thing Caiaphas asks. The second thing that Caiaphas asks is this, are you the son of the blessed? And the blessed is one of the many ways the Jews refer to God. They revere God's name so much to the point that they do not want to call God by name. So Caiaphas is asking Jesus, are you the son of God? Now, 
if Jesus said yes, he get in trouble with the Jews. Because if Jesus said yes, I'm the son of God, then Caiaphas can charge Jesus with blasphemy. And the punishment for blasphemy, according to Jewish law, is death. In other words, if Jesus said yes to Caiaphas' question, Jesus is guilty of breaking both Roman law and Jewish law. Now, do you see how true this question is? Caiaphas is just so smart. And at this time, everyone in that courtyard are waiting for Jesus' answer. And we know that in our study of the book, Mark, the book of Mark so far, Jesus doesn't want people to know who he is, right? Whenever people start to guess who he is, he said, guys, mm-mm, keep it to yourself, don't tell anyone, keep your mouth shut. So Jesus wanted to keep his identity a secret. And all this time, all the religious leaders have been questioning Jesus' identity. They keep questioning, you know, who is this man that he claimed to forgive sin? Who is this man that is able to, you know, heal the sick? By what authority does he speak? Who gave him the right to challenge our power? So everything up to this point is building to this point. Everyone has some idea of Jesus might be. And yet, Jesus has not said it. But now, finally, at this moment, everything changes. Because Jesus answered the question once and for all. Caiaphas asked, are you Messiah, the Son of God? And Jesus replied in verse 62, and Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Boom! Jesus finally answered. The secret is finally disclosed. Jesus said, I am it. I am the Messiah you've been waiting for. I am the one who come to bring God's kingdom. I am the one that was promised to Abraham, Moses, David, and all the prophets. I am the Son of God. Yes, I am He. But as if that's not <laughs> enough, then Jesus adds the fuel to the fire because He doesn't say, I am, but He then makes reference to the Son of Man in the book of Daniel and said, I am that Son of Man. Okay? Now, the, the, the figure of the Son of Man is a very, very important figure in the Old Testament. Okay? Let, me, let me read it to you from Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man in Daniel 7 actually come from the throne of God to earth to judge the world. And now Jesus said, I am the Son of Man. You know what he said? With another word, Jesus said, I am the one who has been appointed by God to judge the entire world. I am the true judge. Do you think you are judging me right now? Take heed. Because regardless what happened today, I will be back and I will judge you. Now, do you know what it means to us? It means that you and I cannot be half-committed Christian. We cannot follow Jesus at a distance. We cannot be like Peter who followed Jesus close enough to still be called Christian, but not close enough to have our life affected. That option is not open for us. But isn't that true? That's how we are most of the time. 
I mean, we don't want to be fully committed. We want to keep our option open. We want to see if things work out well for us first before we make the choice. But Jesus said that's not possible. The only option we have is whether we go all in or all out. Because Jesus said, I am the God of the universe. I am the judge of the universe. I have all the power of heaven and earth. If anyone ever says that, you and I only have two possible options. We either take him for who he is or we reject him altogether. He's either God or lunatic. We must make a choice. We either love him or hate him. Everyone who encountered Jesus in the book of Mark either fall on Danny and worship him or is scared of him and tries to get rid of him. But nobody, nobody in the book of Mark ever say, oh yeah, Jesus, he's nice, he's cool. I like him, he's very wise. But I disagree with him on a few things. It's not possible. Now let me make it per- more personal to us. The one thing that we cannot do with any integrity is to say, hey, Yos, nice sermon, bro. Good preaching. I like what you say about Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ. Awesome. Gospel, yes. And then go home and have a Monday to Saturday unaffected by it. If we believe in Jesus, everything in our life must revolve around Him. He must be our priority. He must have the right to control our life. He gets to decide what is right and wrong. He has the authority to demand anything out of us. I heard it explained this way before. In every heart, there's a throne and a cross. If we are on the throne, Jesus must be on the cross. If Jesus is on the throne, we must be on the cross. So it's the question. Who is sitting on the throne of your heart? Is it Jesus or is it you? And by the way, this passage is not directed to the rule breakers out there. This passage is directed primarily to the religious leaders, the rule keepers, the people in the church. Jesus is addressing the people who consider themselves religious, who come to church every Sunday, yet refuse to surrender control to Him. He says, make a choice. Either you make your life revolve around me, or you have nothing to do with me. And like that's the third one, the verdict, verse 63 to verse 65. And the high priest tore his garment and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving that. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the gods received him with blows. Caiaphas understand Jesus' answer clearly. He knows that there are only two possible responses to Jesus' answer, and he chooses to have nothing to do with Jesus. He rips his high priestly garment apart, which is the sign of the greatest possible outrage, and he accuses Jesus of blasphemy for claiming to be God's son. And everyone goes berserk. They begin to spear on Jesus and beat him in the middle of trial. It is no longer a trial. Everything goes out of control. 
And yet, despite all of this, Jesus is still in control. Because many days before, he already said in Mark chapter 10 that people will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. He knew exactly what's going to happen to him. But I want you to notice the irony in this story. The Sanhedrin stands on the law and Jesus stands on trial. While it is the Sanhedrin that breaks the law and it is Jesus who upholds the law. Jesus stands on trial for upholding the law and the Sanhedrin break the law by putting Jesus on trial. Now, can you see what's happening here? Jesus is the judge of all the earth. But instead of judging people, he's the one being judged. There's a great reversal here. Jesus should have been in the judgment seat, but he stands on trial. Do you know why? Because this trial is for us. See, God is demonstrating that Jesus is on trial, not because of his sin. Jesus is on trial because of someone else's sin. It is our trial that Jesus is going through. Think about it. If sin is us substituting ourselves for God, do you know what salvation is? Salvation is God substituting himself for us. Sin is us sitting on the judgment seat. Salvation is God stepping off the judgment seat and standing on trial for the condemnation we deserve. See, this is what Jesus does in his trial. Jesus said, I am the judge of all the earth. I will judge everyone and I will get rid of all evil, but I'm going to do it not by bringing judgment, but by bearing judgment. I've come not to judge, but to be judged. I've come not to strike you, but to receive the stroke you deserve. I, who is innocent, will become guilty for you so that you who are guilty may be declared innocent. See, we are the one who deserve to be judged. And instead of coming and destroying us, Jesus has come to bear judgment for our sins in our place so that we can be free of charges. Now, this is the gospel. The question is, do you believe that? Now, I'm pretty sure most of us will believe, say, yeah, I believe in the gospel. That's why I'm in this church. But do we? Because if we truly believe the gospel, there's no way for our life to remain the same. If we truly believe that Jesus is the judge who was judged for us, it must radically change our life. It must radically change our life or we do not understand the gospel. Let me share with you four ways this should change our life. First one, if we believe the gospel, we will not easily judge other group of people. Think about it. Jesus is the judge who has the power over heaven and earth. But Jesus gave up his power and sacrificed his life to forgive his enemies. So that means, if we believe that and look at the people who are different from us, and we look down on them, and we feel superior to them, we do not know what we believe. Because at the very heart of the gospel is a man who gave up his infinite power to forgive people who disagree with him and beat him. Now, I need to say this because we are a gospel church. We believe in the gospel. And here's what I see the tendency, the moment that we believe the gospel. You know what happened? We started to say, you know what? I'm a gospel people. We are a gospel-centered church. 
Look at your church. You're legalist, right? Or you look at you, you're antinomian. You're liberal. So now, what happened is we're not careful. We become very prideful of the fact that we are gospel people. And that's irony. That's oxymoron. Because do you, do you even know what the gospel is? Do you even know how we are saved? Because the gospel tells us there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. The fact that you and I are saved today is not because we're better than other people. The fact that we know the gospel today is not because we're smarter than other people. The fact that we know the gospel is because Jesus is at work in our heart. Timothy Keller put it this way. When we put our faith in Jesus, it's like walking through a door. Now, before we walk through that door, we fight. We struggle to believe. We do everything we possibly can to walk through that door. And when we finally walk through that door, it feels like, it feels like we are the one doing all the work. But when we walk through that door, close the door, turn around and look back, we see a sign written over the door. It says, you do not choose me, but I chose you. It means that all our struggle to believe is actually God persistently pursuing us and not giving up on us. That means we are saved not because we're better than other people. We are saved by grace alone. So if our eyes are open to the beauty of the gospel, it's not because you have better eyes than other people. It's because God has been so kind to you and me and He opened our eyes. And if we got that and we believe that and we look at other churches who do not have the same belief as us, or we look at the non-Christian and we judge them on, on how they live their life, we don't get the gospel. Because if we believe Jesus is judged for us, it should destroy every inclination of self-righteousness. We can stop being judgmental toward other groups of people who are different from us. It doesn't mean we don't have standard. We do have standard. And yet, our attitude toward them are very kind and loving. Because we understand the only reason that we understand and love the gospel is because God, by His grace, opened our eyes to see His beauty. Not only that, but the second thing that should happen is we should be able to forgive people who have wronged us. Now, do you know why we find it very hard to forgive other people? Do you know why we find it hard to let go of our grudge? And let me go more specific. Do you know why we love to see something bad happen to people who hurt us? Let me tell you why. Because we are still sitting in that judgment seat. We think we know what they deserve. But do we? Do we really know what they deserve? Do we really know all their story? Do we really know what they're going through? Do we really know the end from the beginning? Well, of course we don't. We don't know all the facts, and we can't judge fairly. Only God is qualified to sit in the seat we're in. So if we continue to sit in God's seat, if we continue to resent the people who have wronged us, if we continue to play judge, here's what happened. It slowly destroys us from the inside. See, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. It's not going to work. It is killing us and destroying us from the inside in so many different ways. So the question is, well then, if that's true, how can I forgive? Think about Jesus. If there's anyone in the universe who has the right to not forgive and hold grudges, 
is Jesus. Because He is the only one who, had, who can hold on to that reason and His reason is justified. He has every right to judge us. But He didn't. We don't have the right to sit in judgment seat over others. But Jesus has that right. But He said, I refuse to sit in judgment. I chose to give up my right. Instead, I bear your judgment. If Jesus could do that for us, if Jesus could forgive a greater debt towards Him, surely, surely we can forgive smaller debt other people owe us. Because the judgment seat is not ours. That seat is not ours. It belongs to Jesus alone. And that debt is either paid fully by Jesus at the cross, or one day He will demand the exact payment for every debt when He returns to earth to judge everyone. But the third one, and I think this is the most liberating for me, we can stop judging ourselves all the time. Now, here's what I mean. For some of us, we know the gospel, and yet we live our daily life as if we're still on trial. We walk around beating ourselves saying, you know what? I'm not good enough. I'm not qualified to be Christian. I compare myself to, you know, other people in the church. They like pray like 10 hours a day. And I only pray like 10 seconds a day. I'm not capable enough. I'm not smart enough. I am not dot, dot, dot enough. You know who we are? We're like Eeyore who thinks that we are awful. We are never enough. But here's my question. Who says so? You know what it is? It is us sitting in the judgment seat of our life. So now, we are both sitting on the judgment seat and standing on trial at the same time. So if our performance is okay, we give ourselves a thumbs up. Well done, Yossi. If our performance is bad, we beat ourselves up. But what gives us the right to sit in that chair? The only person that has the right to sit in the judgment seat over us and give us a verdict, his name is Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, he already did. At infinite cost upon himself, he declared us to be holy, righteous, and blameless. Listen to what Paul writes, and this verses is life-changing verses for me. Let's read it together. First Corinthians 4, verse 1 to 4. This is how one should regard us. Together? This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of steward that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Let me tell you, these verses are beautiful. Okay? Did you hear what Paul say? Three things that Paul said. First, Paul said, I don't really care what other people think of me. I don't care if other people judge me because I don't get my verdict from any other people. I don't get my self-image from you. <laughs> but it doesn't stop there. The second thing he say, I also don't care what I think about myself. Who cares what I think about me? It does not matter what I think about myself. To which we say, wait, 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 Paul, hold on. Hold on. What do you mean? 
I mean, okay, it's awesome that you have, you know, wonderful self-image that you don't care about what other people think of you. But how on earth are you not care about what you think about you? How do you get your self-value then? Well, how do you know that you're good enough? You know what's Paul's answer? It is extremely liberating. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. I have a clear conscience. I have nothing against myself. I know I am innocent. I know I am good enough because only the Lord has the right to judge me. I don't care what you think of me. I don't care what I think of myself. Uh, all I care about is what the Lord thinks of me. And here's the good news of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, Paul already received his verdict. In Jesus Christ, you and I already received our verdict. The trial is over. Jesus is already condemned in our place so that you and I can be free. All our past records are erased once and for all, and a new permanent record is given to us. Get this, through the cross right now, it doesn't matter what you went through in the past. It doesn't matter how bleak your past was. It doesn't matter how hurt you've been. At the cross, you are given a new perfect record. All God sees in our, in our report card is A+. Plus. I mean, you can, you can breathe right now. You're no longer on trial because Jesus has given us his verdict. So we can stop as if we are still on trial all the time because God is no longer angry at us. God loves us in Jesus Christ. He accepts us. He welcomes us. So we need to get over ourselves. We need to stop living in a victim mentality because we are not a victim, my friend. In Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. And fourth, we care about injustice. Now, what happened to Jesus in this trial? He experienced injustice. He identified with the oppressed. He identified with the powerless. He identified with people who have been victims of injustice, those who have been crushed by others unfairly. And this is what's amazing about Christianity. Christianity is the only faith that says God experienced injustice. Christianity is the only faith that says that God experienced suffering. So Christians believe that God not only cares about our suffering, oh no, He experienced our suffering. He's not immune from it. He suffered for us, and He suffered with us. If we get this, it does two things to us, and I'm done. First, it gives us enormous resources to face our own suffering. If you have been betrayed, overlooked, abused, or mistreated, Jesus knew exactly what you're going through. He felt what you felt. He experienced what you experienced, and He endured to the end without failing. He went through what you went through times a million. Because at the cross, Jesus experienced the greatest suffering that you and I will never experience. You know what that is? Jesus lost the approval of the one, the only one whose approval matter. At the cross, God the Father, the judge of all the earth, turned His face on Jesus because of our wrongdoing. 
so that today when we put our faith in Jesus, we have the confidence that God, the judge of all the earth, will never, ever turn His face away from us. He's always with us in our suffering. And not only that, knowing that Jesus suffered injustice for us also gives us enormous resources to care about social justice. See, if we know Jesus suffered justice for us, injustice for us, we will care about people who are victims of injustice. We will care about people who are powerless, who are oppressed by society because they don't have power. We will use what we have to bring justice where there's none. We do so because we have seen Jesus Christ, the judge, being judged for us. Now, do you see what happened now? If we truly get the gospel, if the good news of the gospel really sink into our heart, here's what happened. It enables us to stop judging other people. It enables us to forgive people who have wronged us. It enables us to stop judging ourselves. And it enables us to become advocate for those who are oppressed and powerless. So the question is, do you believe the gospel? Do we see the judge of the universe stand on trial in our place so that we no longer need to stand on trial? Because if we do, it radically changes our life. If the gospel does not radically change our life, then we may not believe the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for many, many years ago, you stand on trial on our place, that you took the condemnation that we deserve, that you took the judgment that we deserve so that we no longer need to stand on trial. For the time again and again that we forgot this, forgive us, Lord. Help us continue to look to you, to what you've done at the cross, and help us to find our self-value in that. For the time and again and again, we might believe the gospel, and yet at the same time, we continue to judge other people. We continue to hold on to our unforgiveness, bitterness. For the time again and again that we continue to put ourselves on trial. And for the time again and again that we neglect those who are hurting around us, forgive us. But I pray that you help us continue to behold the wonder of the gospel. Help us to continue to look to you, Jesus, and what you've done at the cross. And I pray as we continue to gaze on the beauty of the gospel that it began radically shape our life, changes our life, so that we may become more and more like Jesus Christ every single day. Help us, Lord, because we cannot do this by our own strength. Do that supernatural work in our heart, Holy Spirit. As we continue to behold you, May our life reflect your beauty more and more. And we ask this in the name of your Son, beloved Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.